Hello, friends, and welcome to episode number cinco of Sober Speak. Uh, I'll be introducing Mr. Chris M. here in a moment, but first of all, I want to start with a reading from the big book, Alcoholics Anonymous. And this is from the very last page of the doctor's opinion. Uh, it says, I earnestly advise every alcoholic to read this book through, and though perhaps he may come to scoff, he may remain to pray. That is from William D. Silkworth, Dr. Silkworth, uh, Silky, as uh, apparently some of the people back in his name referred to him, and um, uh, my, my good friend uh, Tony D. actually uh, texted that a passage to me the other day, and I wanted to make sure that we included it first thing on this episode of Sober Speak. So, just as a reminder, as Sober Speak, you will find podcasts of people sharing their story, much like they do in a speaker meeting. These men and women will tell us about their experience, strength, and hope centered around the 12 steps of recovery. My name is John M. I'm an alcoholic, and I will be the host of this episode number five. Um, as a reminder, Self Sober Speak is self-supporting through our own contributions. We are not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. That means nobody can come in and tell us what to do or have influence. Uh, we do not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorse nor oppose any causes. Our primary purpose is to stay sober and help others to achieve sobriety. Uh, for more information, please go to our website, SoberSpeak.com, and uh, click on the Contact Us tab, and we'd like to hear any sort of feedback that you have to offer us. Please remember that we do not speak for any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope of recovery for those who wish to come along for the ride. Okay, as promised, uh, we have Chris M. in the house here. Want to say hello to everybody, Chris? Hello, everybody. There we go. So, uh, uh, Chris M., just to kind of uh, establish yourself, can you go ahead and tell everybody where your sobriety date is? Uh, 8-28-14. 8-28-14. Okay, super. Uh, and, uh, you know, I know Chris from meetings. I've always been... Uh, highly intrigued by the things that he has to share in the meetings. So I asked him to come over and be part of Sober Speak, and uh, uh, I'm just uh, uh, thrilled to have him here tonight. So, so Chris, um, as you know, it's Sober Speak, and we're here basically to share experience, strength, and hope where recovery is concerned. So, you know, I always hate to say, you know, take us back to the beginning, but if you would, take us back to the beginning. You know, tell us a little bit about, because uh, I don't even know this, like where you came from, uh, what got you to the point you are here today, your formative years, and you know, you don't have to go through every single detail, but just kind of at a high level, uh, just give us a glimpse of who you are and where you came from. Sure. Yeah. Um, you know, until I told my story the first time, I didn't realize how important these formative years were in my drinking and the reason why I drank, but, um, you know, I was born in Portsmouth, New Hampshire. I never knew my, my biological father. So he was very physically abusive to my mom. So she divorced him before I ever formed a memory of him. Uh, and we, I grew up in Providence, Rhode Island, just outside of it, Warwick. Um, mm -hmm. so super, uh, Italian, super Catholic <laughs> area. 
And, um, you know, I'm six, four with blonde hair and blue eyes. Like that is not Italian. Yeah. And, uh, just for those of you who are just listening in, uh, uh, Chris and I are like, uh, Mutt and Jeff here. He is, uh, he is not, uh, he's big in the sense that he is just, uh, like you said, six, four, two. I, I mean, he's a very well put together guy, right? Not obese or anything like that, but he is definitely large. And then I'm sitting here next to him. I'm like about a one quarter of the size, something <laughs> like that. <laughs> So I'm a, I'm a really big dude. I always have been. I've been taller than everyone most of my life. And, uh, you know, my um, my mom didn't fit in either, right? She's the divorcee among these Italian families that get married forever. And so I never fit in. And there were lots of fights, right? So the parents hated my mom and the kids hated me. And I was, you know, going to Catholic school, trying to fit in. I was just I fought my whole life. And, and so eventually my mom was married and remarried and um, she got divorced and she had to work her way up the corporate ladder. So the first job she took um, when I was 10 was uh, she took a job where she thought I'd, I'd blend in a little bit better. So we moved to the south side of Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, any brothers and sisters? No, no brothers, no sisters. Uh, so here I am. You know, again, super tall, blonde hair, blue eyes, and, and never spent a day outside of Rhode Island except for vacation. And we moved to the south side of Atlanta. And, uh, you know, as you can imagine, I, I didn't blend in there <laughs> either. And there were more fights. And, um, you know, no one, <laughs> no one really liked me there either. Um, so my whole life, you know, I'm just searching for uh, a Please. way to fit in, you know, yeah. a family. I just wanted a brother or dad or some people that I could get along with and I tried the Boy Scouts and I love the camping part of yeah. it. I didn't love the not tying part of it or, you know, memorizing the oaths. I just liked <laughs> hanging out with the boys. Eventually we moved to Nashville, Tennessee. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I fit in a little bit better there. Yeah. I guess, uh, you know, I looked like them, right? For the most part. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that was like very Southern Baptist and I grew up Catholic. I mean, that's, you just do what your parents did and I was, doing what my mom did. So I went to Catholic mass and I I didn't blend in there either. I mean, religion's a huge part. Once you get up in that, you know, Tennessee, Kentucky, religion's a big part of your, big part of your life. And, um, I wasn't really subscribing to that. And so I, I didn't fit in there either. And that was the first time where I really saw, uh, I guess hypocrisy sort of with, with religion and the way people acted. So that was maybe the first like crack in the, in the wall between me and God. Or I guess the crack in the connection between God and I. Right. I don't know if you ever heard this saying before, but uh, I knew somebody who used to say, uh, in terms of uh, hypocrisy and hypocrites in church, he always used to say that when people told him there were hypocrites in church, he'd say, come on down, brother. We got room for another one, right? (laughs) In other words, we all have a little sense of that. But that's where you first started to see a crack in the wall between you and your relationship with God as you understood him, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I had a relationship with the God that my mom and my, my grandparents and, and the priests told me about. That was my relationship with God. I mean, you're, you know, 12 to 14 years old. Right. You don't really, right. I haven't formed my own opinion. No one ever, until I came to this program, no one ever said, you know, how about you try your own higher power? Why don't mm-hmm. you just try that? So I was working off of what was given to me, right? Mm-hmm. Um and uh, eventually, uh, I found my way into Marine Corps ROTC, and um, I really fell in love with that. Ah. 
Um, that's when I felt. What was it about that you love so much? Can you remember? Um, just like that, the, the brotherhood aspect right. of it. Um, and I learned shooting. I learned to shoot and I was right. trained by a, a force reconnaissance scout sniper. And he like, I mean, he really taught us how to shoot and I right. learned it was an art, you know, it's an art form. Right. Um, so I fell in love with it and, and my mom, God bless her. She, uh, she told me later on that she read an article about Jackie Onassis and how after JFK died, she was always sending her son, John, off places, you know, learn how to sail in Maine in the, in the summer and, and go to Idaho on a ranch another summer. And he, she didn't want him to be a, a soft man. Right. So she was sending him off. She wanted him to experience men. So my mom, you know, she did. <laughs> she... She read the good housekeeping article. So um, she found this school in South Texas called Marine Military Academy. And uh, she sent me there. Uh, and so you have the option when you go there, you can be a, a plebe for six months out of the school year, or you can uh, go to boot camp over the summer, which is like eight weeks long. Educate me. I know, I've heard that word plebe before. Yeah, plebe is uh, like, a, like a freshman. You just do all yeah. the dirty work. Okay. You've got no rank, no status. You're eating less. Like, yeah, Where you, does the term come from? I don't do you know. It's, either, it's probably Latin. <laughs> um, but it's the low man on the, on right. the totem pole. And you could do that for six months. Mm -hmm. um, or you could go to this boot camp for eight weeks. Okay. And so my, my mother sent me to the boot camp. And again, I, I love that. Like the, the part that most kids hate, running, sweating, getting muddy and dirty and, <laughs> and getting yelled at and, and being in a, a formation. I love that. Yeah. Um, that was the best. And I fell in love with it. And, and my mom somehow saved up and paid for me to go to school there during the semester. <laughs> but um, wow. during the semester, uh, that's where the kids that didn't like that had already gone to boot camp or done their plebeian time, that's where they came back to go to school full time. And that was the first time where I realized like, these were not kids that were interested in joining the United States Marine Corps. Um, these were kids that were doing drugs and getting in fights <laughs> and had been to court a few times. Like boarding school. It was 100% a boarding school. Yeah. yeah. And so I saw drugs for the first time, right? I saw okay. people snorting pills and pornography and alcohol. And um, I did none of that, though. Mm -hmm. So I was still a good, virginal Catholic Remind me again how old were you at this time? 16. 16. Wow. wow. So, um, you know, I, I wanted to get out of there after the curtain was pulled back and I saw what was really happening. Um, I said, mom, you got to get me out of here. This is not what you thought it was. Um, so I, I pulled out of there and I went back to Frisco, Texas. I went to Frisco high school. Oh, really? Yeah. My mom had moved from Nashville to Frisco in that time. The, the raccoons? Yeah, I was actually just a coon. Right at the there. time. Right. Yeah. yeah, I got you. So a little less PC back then. Right. Yes. Right. Um, so I went to Frisco, uh, long, I ended up getting a GED. I didn't even graduate from, from high school. Um, and somewhere along the way, I, I, uh, I met this gal. I had a friend introduce me to a gal and I just thought she was unbelievable. And, um, you know, I would say, uh, I am my own worst enemy. And the fact that like, I have the lowest opinion of myself that you can possibly have. So you know, if I've ever been mean to you or said terrible things about you, like, believe me, I'm saying, you know, in my head, it's way worse. Like, right. I'm saying things to myself way worse than anything I've ever said to anyone else. Right. And I just couldn't believe that this gal was attracted to me. And my, my friend told me, hey, I think this, this gal likes you. 
And I said, there's, <laughs> there's no way. Like, I mean, you might as well tell me the earth was flat. Like, it's just, I mean, uh, chisel that in stone. I just didn't think that that was possible. It's an impossibility. And um, we hung out a couple of nights later, and I found out she drank alcohol. And um, so I drank alcohol, right, for the first time. It was my first drink. I think it was a Zima. The, Zima, yeah, yes. the blue yes. bottles, yes. Zimas. Um, <laughs> And I learned uh, a couple of things that night. Um, one was factual and one was factually incorrect. The factual portion was uh, I can drink more than a lot of people. So these folks that were my peers um, at 17 or 18, they had been drinking for you know a couple of years. Right. Um, and I had never had a drink before. And I could immediately that first night drink more than them. Right. Uh, I didn't throw up. They were throwing up. Um, and I was not. I was rock solid. And I realized that... <laughs> If I just make them keep drinking and keep drinking, I'm I'm good, and they're gonna get hammered. It's and, a talent. Yeah, and and uh, the factually incorrect uh, the lie that I told myself was that it made me more attractive. Yeah. To everyone. Right. Physically and emotionally. We all think that, don't we? I I fit in. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, I was one of the I was one of the cool kids. Right. Uh, the beautiful gal was attracted to me. The guys that were there wanted to hang out with me for the first time. You know, you know like I'm funnier. I'm, I finally find that this is like the magic pill. Um, and so that was the first time I, I drank that night. So, um, And you think that part of the reason... You, so I guess it's a kind of a double thing here why you could actually drink as much as everybody else. Number one, your size. But number two, it just seems like you have some sort of uh, gene inside you that lets you drink more than other people. Yeah. It's a good combo if you want to drink. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, big time. Yeah. I don't think it's size. I don't think it's a size thing. I think that's a big misconception. Right. Yeah. Because there are, I mean, look at me, right? Um, I, as, <laughs> as we've already talked about, yeah. am much smaller than you, but I could definitely keep up with uh, a lot of people, even your size and larger. So, it's just uh, it's just a gift from God, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's the one way of putting it. <laughs> All right, so I got you off track. So, so th- that was the first time you had drank. You're with uh, this uh, young lady, and did it? Uh, I mean, was it just kind of like a, a daily drinking from that point, or was no. it more periodic, or how to go? No, again, so um, that uh, you know, what my my first sponsor later that physical allergy was not present at that time or at least I was able just to walk away from it because I still had that you know my what my mother instilled in me you know we don't drink or do drugs or have sex before marriage and all this stuff you know growing up Catholic in New England but uh, I still wanted to impress her and the other thing that she did was was smoke marijuana mm-hmm. and uh, if liquor was good if if drinking was good marijuana was great so <laughs> you know that when I smoked weed for the first time, that right. that brought me home. Now yeah. I was really, I mean, just mellow me out and let's laugh and have a good time and, and chill out. And that was the ticket for me. <laughs> so, uh, you know, we, we smoked marijuana for a little bit um, and we drank occasionally, but mainly it was the, the marijuana. Um, and so... Eventually, we broke up, and so, um, so you had your first drink with this uh, young lady, yeah. and you had your first uh, uh, ganja. Is that do I remember that? Yeah. Right? <laughs> my uh, terminology. Well, it's the only way she'd like me. Remember, right? It made me more attractive. Yeah. It wasn't. It wasn't that she said 
she liked me before we ever hung out stone cold sober right right i didn't hear that part yeah but i saw the effect when i was drinking and we were drinking together yeah all right, so take us from there. So that relationship, and uh, um, I don't know if you want to. I know you were in the service. Uh, if you want to hop to that, or if there's something in between you want to talk about, you tell me. Um, yeah, I think you know, I did. I was in the military uh, for a little over three and a half years, um, but it wasn't. You know, that was a little under ten percent of my life, right, mm-hmm, or nine percent, right. or whatever. So it doesn't define me, but really the, the drinking, uh, started in earnest before I, I actually joined. So, um, I was living in Plano. I was flunking out of community college, mm-hmm. um, just smoking a lot of weed. And, um, I decided one day I wanted to join the military. And so long story short, uh, I enlisted in the army, but I had caught a possession of drug paraphernalia and minor consumption of alcohol charge before I signed up. And the recruiter told me, uh, you can join, but because of this charge, you have to be sober for a year before you can ship off to basic training. Mm -hmm. And uh, what they don't tell you is that the military drug tests often and randomly. So they're randomly, they're always testing for, for drugs, but what they don't test for is alcohol, right? Right. So uh, I heard the, you got to stop smoking weed part loud and clear, but they didn't say anything about booze. Yeah. And so, you know, if the weed levels are dropping down, then we got to bump that up somewhere else. <laughs> you got to fill that vacuum. Yeah. So the booze, the booze came right back into play. Mm-hmm. Um, and I drank very, very, very heavily. Uh, I met some older guys. I was working at a gym and uh, they started taking me out to the bars in Addison in the, in the early 2000s. And uh, I wanted to be like them and, and, you know, fit in. And I was, I was a big guy, so I could get into the bars, even yeah. though I was like yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And um, lot, lots of debauchery, right? Lots of, <laughs> lots of nonsense during that time period. But uh, Debauchery, that's a great word. Yeah. I like that. I understand that. But I was drinking uh, a lot. And I was drinking just to fit in. I would drink sapphire and tonics um, because I thought it sounded classy. And in between each round, I would have a Jaeger bomb. Like that was a cool thing to do because that's what these older fellers that were taking me out were doing. Yeah, uh, it's just insanity. I mean, I can't think of right now. I can't think of a worse combination of liquor. Right. So uh, I was pretty at that point. I think the that's the first time I can remember routinely going to my job, working at a shoe store, and waking up almost every morning, going to that job, hungover, and saying, "I'm not going to drink again." And I would spend the day working at that store having a vitamin water revive <laughs> right. and a gallon of water. Yeah. And that night I would go out and I would do that routinely. Mm-hmm. And that's the first concrete time where I can remember saying never to drink again, taking a break, and then immediately drinking again that very night with money I didn't have. Right. So. <laughs> so at some point then, uh, you came to a, uh, I guess a... Uh, uh, a turnaround point. I, I guess I'm wondering what brought you in to recovery, right? Uh, what, what was the bridge? What, what what got you there? Well, there's a little. There's that three year gap that I was talking about, about three and a half year gap. So, eventually, I I enlisted. Uh, I shipped. I, I made my ship date. I got arrested on my 21st birthday for <laughs> pu- for public intoxication. <laughs> That's the PI. Uh, no, that was after. This is the second. Uh, I didn't go to jail the first time. The second time I, I did go to jail. Um, that was a month before I shipped off to or two months before I shipped off to basic training. So, yeah. 
Yeah, pub, public <laughs> intoxication on your twenty. I might add, I was born on the Fourth of July, so uh, I just I just didn't think it would be possible for this police officer to take me to jail <laughs> on the Fourth of July in the middle of the war when I've got a you know this little card they give you that says you're about to join the military. Oh no! And he did. He did. Yeah. I went to jail, but no one found out, and I went to the military. Um, and so, um, I guess I got stationed in Fort Riley, Kansas. Um, no one knows where that is. You're kind of looking off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so um, originally, I was supposed to go to the 101st Airborne Division in Fort Campbell. And um, two weeks before we graduated, I, I became a scout. I was a scout in the Army. And, and two weeks before we graduated, um, our drill sergeants came in. Wait, what's a scout? Uh, yeah, so we go where the eyes and ears of the of the battlefield commander. So we go in front, in a traditional sense, in a traditional role, which there isn't a lot of in Iraq and Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. We go in front of... Uh, conventional forces and perform reconnaissance on the enemy. Um, so we report back in uh, what we see and we pray that we get to directly engage what we're looking at or drop bombs or call artillery in on, on the enemy. And oftentimes the answer is no. And uh, they pull us back <laughs> and send in conventional infantry. Folks. So how do you go in? I mean, I just, uh, that sounds kind of dangerous, first of all, but I guess there's nothing that's not dangerous, right? They're, they're all dangerous jobs, but yeah. going in ahead of everybody else, how, just out of curiosity, how, how do you get into those places? Sneaky. You're really sneaky. <laughs> <laughs> no, and being your size, you know, is it does that, does that add some degree of difficulty to it? Or is that, uh, I mean, would a smaller guy be able to do that better? I guess I'm wondering. Yeah, I don't know. Um no, I don't think that. I mean, there's a lot of jokes. I, f- I forget what they were, but they said, you know, if we ever invade Antarctica, you'll be right at home because you can camouflage yourself as a polar bear and no one will ever, you can walk around wherever you want. No one will guess where you are, Chris. Um, but no, there's, there's a, you know, ideally they'll just never know that, that we're there and that was often the case. Um, so... All right, so you were a scout. Yep. And then I interrupted you. Where where were you going from there? Uh, well, I was telling you, I, I didn't know where I was going. Uh, originally, we were supposed to go to 101st, which everyone has yeah. heard of. And then our, our drill sergeants came and said, hey, all you guys that think you're going to jump out of helicopters and airplanes at the 101st, there's a surge that's happening into, into Baghdad. You're going to Fort Riley, Kansas instead. Everyone's shifting. And we said, Fort Riley? You know, what is that? Uh, and it's a town in the middle of nowhere in, in northern Kansas. So uh, Fort Riley, Kansas, uh, is located right next to Kansas State University. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yeah. Manhattan, right? Manhattan, Kansas. Manhattan, Kansas. Um, so uh, lots of great bar scene there. Yeah. There's not a lot to do, right? So you're training, you're freezing, or you're drinking. Right. <laughs> Sometimes all at the same, uh, all at the same time. And it was when I was at uh, Fort Riley, I met, I met a gal. I met a gal. and I, This is a different gal, right? I, yeah, I met a different gal. Um, Whatever happened to the old gal? Just curious. The great white buffalo. I don't know. She, <laughs> she got away to wander the plains and more than likely some other hunter capitalized. Oh, you ever listen to Ted Nugent by you? I do not. He sings a song called The Great White Buffalo. Yeah. But I digress. Alright, so you're in Manhattan, Kansas. Yeah, and I felt... Met a gal. In an Irish bar. Yeah, an Irish bar. I'm Polish. Uh, yeah. She was Irish. We met in an Irish bar in Manhattan, Kansas, and I um, I fell in love. I fell in love deeply. And uh, eventually I came down on, on orders to deploy to Iraq. And I did what most privates in the army do. And I proposed to her, I asked her if she wanted to marry me. And she said, yes. 
And so uh, I got and how him. How old are you at this time? Are you 20? 22. 22, okay. 22 or 23. I don't All know. Right. I turned 24 in Iraq, so uh, I guess 23. Right there. Or right. 22 or 23, somewhere Okay, gotcha. Right. So um, I deployed to Iraq. And um, Iraq was for me was really anticlimactic. Um, you know, I only joined to fight. I didn't want to do anything. Uh, I, I didn't. It doesn't. So this, the common misconception is people think like, well, we shouldn't have been in Iraq, or we shouldn't have been in Afghanistan, or we shouldn't be anywhere. Or why did we go into this country? And I didn't care about any of that. Um, it's sort of like a bar fight. Like I don't care the reason why. I just see my buddies getting hit, and I'm going to go in there. And I'm going to hit the person that's hitting them. Right. And. Um, you know, on the news, I just saw these pictures of these faces in flag-draped coffins. And I just yeah. thought to myself, you know, I'm going to go give them some flag-draped coffins. Yeah. And I just want to go over there and, and shoot some folks in the face. I mean, that's all we trained to do. I was a scout. Like, I say right. that without any bravado. Like, that's every right. every scout's dream. Right. you just want to go over there and shoot someone. Right. Not like a I, baby. I'm I just saying, you know what right, I'm saying. Right, right, right. Like, the vengeance. The vengeance. Right, yeah. Um... So I, I went over there and I got stationed uh, in, in a place called Mamadia. It's just south of Baghdad. And it's an area called the Triangle of Death. And it's the only place in Iraq where four soldiers were kidnapped and beheaded from their trucks. Um, it's not, they don't call it the Triangle of Death for nothing. And just the year prior, they had had that. So uh, we went down south and lived on the small base and... Um, we patrolled every single day. So uh, I, I got an award for like uh, performing 250 missions or something like that. So we're rolling every day. And uh, every time you go outside that wire, you're just rolling the dice, mm-hmm. right? And, um, you know, I didn't shoot. I didn't fire my weapon once outside the wire. Mm-hmm. Not, not one time. And um, that was real hard for me. Um you know, now looking back on it, there's times... Is I'm, the wire... Uh, is that a perimeter? Yeah, anytime you leave the base, anytime yeah. you leave your protective wall, gotcha. you go out on, a, on a patrol, on a mission. Yeah. And um, I came close uh, several times at my finger on the trigger and the, the weapon on fire, but I didn't have uh, positive identification. I didn't pull the trigger. So, mm. uh, But when you come back, that's real hard. I, I try to say it's like... Um, it's like playing a second-string quarterback at the Super Bowl. And you never play, but when you come back home, everyone's putting their arm around you and saying, look at this guy's ring. This guy, Super Bowl 42. And you're like, you just want to tell, it's embarrassing to the point where you're like, I didn't touch the ball. Like, you don't understand. I sat on the sidelines. I didn't sit on the sidelines, but the reason why I joined the Army, that was was not from, yeah, and I didn't. And I rolled every day, and we just couldn't make them fight. I, they just wouldn't fight us. Right. And as soon as we left, ironically enough, we left that area, and two weeks later, we got orders. They said, hey, you guys, find your cleanest uniform. We're going back down to Mamadia. And we said, we were in a different area. We were up in Baghdad. And we said, why are we going to Mamadia? We just left there. And they said, well, they just lost five guys. <sighs> they just wouldn't fight us. I don't know what yeah, it was. Yeah. It just wasn't... God, God yeah. didn't want me to kill anyone. So, But along those times... Um, they did start blowing us up more. Um, some of my friends were, were getting hurt. Uh, a lot of IEDs, and they like fighting in the summer. Yeah. Um, I don't know why, because I hate the heat. I hate the heat worse than anything right. else. And, um, fighting the cold. Yeah, and so I'm getting angry, right? I'm getting angry. And those phone calls home to my fiance were getting angrier and angrier. Mm-hmm. And uh, on one of those phone calls, she said, you know, maybe after you've been home for a while, you, you can find your own apartment. And, uh, you know, she was breaking up with me. 
and um, 11 months into a 12 month long tour. And I was, I was broken. I mean, I was devastated. Um, I was a broken man. And um, I don't know how many missions I went on, but I, I remember just being in a pit and just, I can remember praying after 11 months of praying that I make it back alive and that I don't get blown up. And hopefully I have both my hands so my fiance can put a wedding ring on my hand. I remember distinctly in one particular mission praying, we were going through a bad section and praying that um, we would get hit and maybe I'd lose like just a leg below the knee or something. And my mm. fiance would stick around with me. If I was wounded, surely she wouldn't leave me. Right. Um, so dark, dark, dark place. Right. But I made it. Yeah. I, I came home Yeah. and um, I went to, uh, I, I was lost. I was getting out of the army at the same time. So my contract was up as soon as I came back and Iraq was anticlimactic and I figured if, you know, if I was going to deploy again it would be Afghanistan I said we've been in Afghanistan even longer than Iraq I'm not going to go over to Afghanistan it's going to be even worse it's going to be even lamer so I'm just getting out of the army um, and I, I didn't know what to do so I just said I'll come back to North Texas I'll live with my mom I'll go to community college and um, <laughs> yeah that's what I did and that's where I first found uh, the program do you say AA? Do we talk about that on the podcast? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. Right. Yeah, so yeah, that's yeah. when I first... So, right. Um, while I was becoming a professional drinker, now I've met some very serious alcoholics outside of the military. But if you think you can drink as a civilian, like, I encourage you, please, go to your nearest active duty post, find an infantry platoon, and spend a weekend with them. Like, I was a professional. So I had a PhD in drinking. But I've met a lot of civilians that have as well. Um, But I thought I was good beforehand. So while I was getting my advanced degree, uh, a friend that I had partied with, (laughs) he had found sobriety. And so by the time I got out, he had three years. Oh, wow. And um, I was pretty depressed and devastated when I came home living at my mom's house going to Collin County Community College and um, I realized that drinking a bottle of scotch a night probably wasn't helping me (laughs) again I drank scotch just because uh, when I was in Iraq we used to watch Boston Legal and at the end of every Boston Legal episode William Shatner and his legal partner have a glass of scotch on the balcony and I thought well that's a classy drink I'll drink scotch so I was drinking a bottle a night, not a glass a night, yeah. in my mom's house, not my law firm, Balcony. And I just knew it wasn't helping. I again, So I didn't understand the physical allergy, the spiritual malady, uh, none of that. Mm-hmm. Um, the mental obsession. I just knew that drinking wasn't helping right. what I wanted to do. Right. Um, so I went to an AA meeting. And how do you remember how you found it? I, my, my friend with, with ah. three or four, I just knew, I said, hey, buddy, um, you know, his, his, his name is Mark and he's got over a decade now. But I said, hey, I know you found, you don't drink anymore. You know, can you tell me how you do it? And he said, yeah, let's go to this AA meeting. And that kind of comes into the planting seeds. You just never know when someone's going to reach out and they say whenever... Uh, the hand of AA reaches out to, uh, my job is to be there in the responsibility. I'm, I'm messing that all up. Yeah. But you, uh, but your buddy Mark was there. He took you to a meeting. Uh, you knew he had been sober and you reached out to him. So, all right. So you went to your first meeting and what do you remember about it? Nothing. Um, I remember there were some old folks and they were cussing a lot and <laughs> they were relatively angry. I was 24 at the time. And, um, relatively angry yeah 
Well, I won't name the group. <laughs> but I went there this past weekend. They're still angry. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so, uh, but w- what I took away from that, so I was bulletproof, right? I just come back from war, from the Ooh, Triangle of Death, right. from the military. <laughs> I was invincible. And there's nothing I couldn't control. Like yeah. I'd done, in my mind, everything I'd set my mind out to do. That was pretty hard. I mean, like you said, you know, I'm a huge guy. Like the job I took is not meant for for guys my size, and I did it. Like I was keeping up. Most of the scouts are fairly yeah, most average to small size guys. I was I was a polar bear in my platoon. There's a there's a black guy in my platoon. They called him the grizzly bear. And uh, so what I took away from that first meeting was uh, you got to quit drinking, and then that's it. And I thought there's nothing I can't do. I'll just quit drinking. Mm-hmm. And I did. And so that's a fatal mistake. Um, that's confusing sobriety with abstinence from alcohol. Mm-hmm. And that's confusing an alcohol problem with alcoholism. Mm-hmm. So I don't have an alcohol problem. Uh, an alcohol problem from a heavy drinker is solved by stopping drinking. And when you stop drinking your bills are paid on time and your wife is happier and your job improves. And most importantly, you're happy. Yeah. Um, and then that's it. End of story, right? You're done. Uh, but you know, I, I say in meetings all the time and I'll say it here, you know, if, if all I do is stop drinking, someone's going to get killed and it's going to be you or it's going to be me, but, um, it's, I'm miserable and I'm depressed and I'm suicidal. And it's not good. Um, but I quit drinking for four and a half years. Um, so for four and a half years, I poured all of my energy into accomplishing these things. If I could just get my bachelor's degree, something, you know, raised by a single mom on the South side of Atlanta, never thought I'd have. So used a GI belt, went to a local larger four year university, got my bachelor's degree. And during that time, um, you know, I was still miserable. The other neat thing I want to point out is that I think a lot of alcoholics, um, especially men, have this weird innate ability to attract the most wonderful women on the planet and then defecate all over them and your relationship with them. And I did that during my time in college as well. So fantastic woman. And I just treated her like dirt the entire time. And we're breaking up and getting back together. And I'm miserable. I'm a dry drunk. Yeah. so I got my degree. Mm-hmm. Um, in the meantime, I was still miserable. I was like, I'm going to get in really good shape. Because when you get out of the army, everyone grows a beard and gets tattoos and gets fat. And that's exactly what I did. <laughs> so, yeah. You're not fat. Well, I was. Oh, okay. Got I am. Got I am, you. but I was more fat. Right. So uh, I got in really good shape. I got in incredible shape. Because the bachelor's degree wasn't cutting it. So if I just got in excellent... And, and the beautiful woman... That wasn't cutting it either. I'm still miserable. So I'll just pour myself into physical fitness. And um, I was miserable with that. So it came time time to graduate and I got myself a job. I I somehow got an offer and interviewed with um, a big Fortune 500 company and got a real big boy job, something I never thought I'd have. Um, And then I'm still miserable, right? And so then, uh, you know, I remember maybe during the interview, they said, tell me about your five-year plan. And I said, well, in the next five years, I'd like to own a piece of land. I'd like to buy a house. And that's something I, you know, I never thought I'd do in my entire life. Um, and I did that. Mm-hmm. I did that in like one year. I bought a house, the VA loan. Um, and I found myself 
with uh, the gal. We, I don't even know if we were broken up. I think we were broken up at that time, but say that gal, uh, a job, a house, a degree, and on a flight for work from Lubbock to Dallas. And I remember sitting on the plane, getting ready to take off from Lubbock, and I came to the choice, uh, the decision rather, I said, I think tonight I'm going to kill myself when I get home. And that's how miserable I was. And that's alcoholism. Uh, at least for me. Mm-hmm. Everything I could have ever wanted. And I decided I wanted to kill myself. And so... We know loneliness loneliness such as few do, says Linda. Yeah, I remember it was, at, it was a night flight. And I remember I can see the inside of that. It was an older 737-500. So it had like a yellowed, you know, 1980s interior. Mm-hmm. And it was black outside in Lubbock. There's no lights on that airport. And I remember just thinking like, when I... Get home tonight, I'm going to kill myself, but I got to work out these logistics. And um, so along that, that time period, right when I came back, I was so lost and I wasn't getting out of bed. I'd gotten a dog. I got this big golden retriever named Tucker. And um, I decided when I landed, I said, well, if I kill myself, I, I, I don't want Tucker to like see me dead. And he, he can't possibly live without me. So maybe I got to kill him first. I was like, I, there's absolutely no way I can do that. So I called up this ex slash girlfriend, whatever at the time. And I said, hey, um, you know, I think, I know you really love Tucker. We lived together throughout college. I think you should, you should probably take him. I don't think I'm going to be here anymore. And, um, you know, people ask me and say, you know, do you think that was a, a cry for help? And I say, no, absolutely not. Like, it was just, you know, logistics. Right. I'm just making plans. This is not a, a cry. And so, uh, long story short, I, 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 I drove home from Love Field to, my house in McKinney and the McKinney police were waiting there for me and they gave me a, a free ride down to a mental hospital. <laughs> no charge. No charge. That's great. In Dallas. And um, when I got there, I just immediately lied my ass off. I just picked a line. This is a crazy ex-girlfriend. Why would I be suicidal? I was just on an airplane for work. I'm completely sober. I'm not depressed at all, nor do I want to kill myself. I got to get out of here. Uh, and they believe me. And 16 hours later, they let me out. Um, and so shortly after that, I relapsed. I went out and I started drinking again. Um, and uh, How long had you been sober at that point? Do you remember? Uh, pr- pr- probably like four years. and That was the four years. Four years and two months, four years and three months. Wow. Something like that. I wouldn't wish that on anyone. If you're listening to this podcast and, you know, just go back out. Alcohol yeah. is a great persuader. Right. Um, but... You know, the idea of, of spending that time as a dry drunk again sounds worse than a relapse to me. I'd right. rather go back out, hands right. down. Right. Very interesting. Very interesting. Okay, so you went back out and then... Yeah, I went back out. Um, and that only lasted a couple of months. And in that time, I nearly lost everything. So, you know, I'm blacking out. So I, people talk a lot about, you know, when they go back out, they were back up to speed very in, in short order. Do you remember if like what that was like? Were you at the same pace or how was that then? Yeah, about a week or two. Yeah. Um, the first week, you know, I was you know, quote unquote controlled, but nothing notable. So, you know, the first night was three or four beers mm-hmm. and then back to the house. And the second day was... I just want a quesadilla and a margarita and, you know, maybe let's tack on a couple shots of tequila with that, but nothing crazy, nothing nuts. But shortly after that, I mean, we're, we're back up to drink shot, drink shot, drink shot throughout the night and you're black now. So, you know, drove my truck into my house, back in, (laughs) 
you know, almost <laughs> the lost, normal stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> had a different girl. Nearly lost my job, um, and so I knew it was falling apart. Yeah. Um, so, so then take us to getting back into the. So you were. How long did you drink once you went back out again? I don't remember. Probably th- four months. Okay. Three or four months. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's a bit bad, real bad. I can remember opening up a pocket knife underneath the table, arguing with someone and just thinking, if this guy comes over here, I'm going to stab. I mean, you know, just real bad. Right. Blacking out regularly. Um, I used to call that time travel. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You just, you know, you're in one place, you black out, then you wake up in another place. Yeah. Oh, what happened there? I like, uh, I like disappearing. (laughs) I just want to disappear from here for a little bit. So I'm going to be gone. I'll see you guys tomorrow. (laughs) We'll restart. Um, so I can remember to say, I can remember the exact thought process is my first spiritual experience. Um, I was, I was driving, uh, with a new gal who I, I cared about very much, taking her out to dinner one night and I made a passing comment as we're driving. I said, uh, I think I'm done drinking. Uh, I've been hung over for four days now. Uh, this is getting real old. I don't think I can do this anymore. Right. And I could tell she was pretty pissed. And, uh, I looked over at her and I said, you know, what's your what's your problem? And she said, well, you said you'd quit drinking, you know, in August at the beginning of August. And I said, Oh, well, I don't remember saying that, but I'll take your word for it. You know, I don't remember much. So I believe you. And, um, I, she's still giving me the stink eye. And so I said, stink. Eye. Yeah. So I looked back at her and I said, what is your problem? You know, how does this affect you? Like we're not even in a relationship. And you're pissed about my drinking. How does this affect you at all? And she said, well, for the past month, I've been going to Al-Anon meetings twice a week uh-huh. to try to understand you and your sobriety. Yeah. And you've been drinking and hiding it the whole time. And, um, you know, I've, I was crushed, right? I just felt terrible. She was in college and driving 30 minutes to go to meetings twice a week. And so I did what any good alcoholic does. And I whipped my truck around. I said, well, we're not going out to dinner. You can go your way. I'll go my way tonight. But I'm not going to look at you. Give me a dirty look all night long. The stink eye. Yeah. So I, I drove back to my house. And I, she took off in her car. And I parked my truck. And I went inside. And I laid across my bed. And a thought came to me. It wasn't a sound. It wasn't auditory. I didn't see it. It was just something came across my brain that I'd to this day, I don't think I generated. And it said, uh, if someone you're not even in a relationship with loves you enough to go to two Al-Anon meetings a week for a month, do you think you could love yourself enough just to go to one freaking AA meeting? Yeah. Just one? Yeah. And I pulled out my phone. I Googled, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous and the city I live in, which I highly recommend to anyone. If you don't know where meetings are or you're on the road or on business, just Google they even have apps. Yeah, yeah, there's an app called Meeting Guide, yeah. but there's no excuse. I've been to meetings in uh, northwestern Montana, Seattle, the Maine. I mean, um, there's no reason. If you're in Kittery, Maine, Google Kittery, Maine AA meetings, and you'll come up with a list of them, I promise you. <laughs> so, uh, and I went to my first meeting the next day, and I met my sponsor at that meeting. A guy came up to me and shook my hand. Was that in Frisco? Yes, it was. Yeah. And a um, guy came up to me and shook my hand and said... Hey, my name's Ron. You want my number? And, uh, you know, I didn't know what I was doing there. I was, huh? 
But I knew he had an airplane on his shirt, embroidered, yeah. and I thought, well, maybe he owns a plane. He drives a big Lexus. Maybe like take <laughs> take me flying or get me a job in the aviation industry. It's a spiritual selection there, right? Yeah, exactly. So I took his number, and um, he became you know about a week later, I was miserable again, not drinking for a week, and. Um, yeah, I called him up. I said, I don't know how this works, but I think I need to ask you, will you be my sponsor? And he laughed and said, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right. Tell me about your journey through, and I know this is hard to do in just a few minutes or whatever, but your journey through the steps, your relationship with God, what it's meant to you, how it's changed over the uh, years. And uh, take me down that road a little bit with you. Yeah, sure. Uh, I guess the fastest way to do this would just let's go to step three. Um, and my I knew I was powerless over alcohol because I tried everything else in the not drinking realm besides these steps. And at the end of that time, I was 100 percent prepared to kill myself. So I knew I was powerless over alcohol. and My life was completely unmanageable. So step one was covered. I also knew that. Um, if something were to keep me from drinking, it would have to be a power greater than me. Because once again, I have done everything in my own power to not drink. And I was still drinking after four and a half years. Yeah. So, um, you know, Ron told me in my first meeting, he said, I'd like you to do a few things. These are suggestions. Mm -hmm. And I think they're really suggestions in the way that like a police officer would be like, sir, I suggest you calm down. <laughs> like, you don't have to calm down. <laughs> right. <laughs> like... It would greatly behoove the outcome if you did. <laughs> oh, excuse me. That's good. I like that. So he said, I've got a few suggestions for you. He said, I'd like you to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. I'd like you to really make an effort to do that. And he said, I'd also like you to do five things every single day. The first thing would be to get down on your knees, physically go on your knees in the morning and pray to whatever you think is spinning this universe around they're great pumpkin for all i care and say god please keep me sober today and that's it and he said throughout the day i'd like you to do three things i want you to go to a meeting i want you to talk to another alcoholic that can be me mm -hmm. and i'd like you to read some sort of a literature and he said if at, at the end of that day if you don't drink i'd like you to get down on your knees again before you go to sleep and pray to the great pumpkin and just say thanks <laughs> That's it. God, please keep me sober. Mm -hmm. Second prayer. Thanks. Mm -hmm. That's it. Yeah. And so I did those things. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we worked our way uh, to the third step and he trapped me in his car and, and um, we're going to run a little You're good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's important. You're good. You're good. Yeah. So we, uh, we walk out of a meeting and he used to love to trap me in the front seat of his car. We'd be walking to our cars together and he'd say, hey, did you read chapter four? And I'd say, oh, you know, I had to return some videotapes. I didn't have time. And he'd say, well, why don't we go to my car and read it real quick? <laughs> and so we were reading up to the third step prayer. And uh, he said, you know, if you're comfortable, I'd like you to say this prayer. And I said, uh, okay, but I'd like to kind of put an asterisk by it. And he said, what do you mean? And he goes, well, I'd like to say, God, if you're out there, and then say the prayer. And he said, well, maybe we're not ready to say that prayer then. And he said, <laughs> tell me why. And this is important. Um, so we all have what we talk about in the fifth step. You know, we have these things that we keep hidden um, mm -hmm. behind this curtain of shame. Mm -hmm. that, these stories that we don't tell anyone ever. Mm -hmm. And uh, I said, I can tell you exactly why. I'm unsure as to whether or not there's a God. I said, when I came back from Iraq and I 
was living in the barracks in cold Kansas in the winter before I left the army. Um, again, I was completely lost. I didn't see a reason for me coming back. I had no, no wife that I thought I'd have at the time. And, uh, I didn't want to be here anymore. And so I laid in my, in my barracks room alone in the dark and I pulled out a pistol and I, I put it to the side of my head alone. And I think I was crying. I think I was probably slightly drunk alone in the dark, laying down in my bed. And I took the safety off and I said, God, uh, you know, just show me, give me a sign that you exist. Give me a sign that you're out there, that I have a reason for being here because I don't see a reason for, I can't see it. And I've, I've tried looking, but I don't see a reason for me being here right now. And I don't want to be here anymore. I'm, I'm hurting bad. Mm -hmm. Um, so if you just give me a sign, anything, uh, you know, I, I won't pull this trigger. And, uh, there was nothing. There's nothing. It's never been quieter in an infantry barracks. I would have taken anything there, you know, refrigerator compressor kicking on or the wind rustling some branches against my barracks window or someone farting in the hallway when they walk <laughs> past my door, anything I would take. And as a sign, dead silence, dead silence. And I'll never forget weeping uncontrollably. And I've, I've never felt more alone in my entire life in that moment, nothing. And I looked over at my sponsor and I think I was crying and I said, you know, you tell me what kind of a God, what friend of mine would, would leave me hanging like that. When all I asked for was a sign, why I wouldn't get one. That's why I want to say, God, if you're out there. And he said, he asked me a question that no one had ever asked me because I keep these things hidden from other people. He said, um, why didn't you pull the trigger? And I said, uh, shit, I don't know. Mm -hmm. I don't know. There was no one there, no one to stop me. Mm -hmm. Just me alone crying with a pistol against my head in the dark. I said, I don't know, Ron. I can't tell you. No one's ever asked me that question before. No one's ever challenged these rock solid beliefs I've had that I keep hidden behind everyone else. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, I would, I would venture to say that perhaps God gave you not what you asked for, but exactly what you needed in that moment. Because you didn't. And when he thought he had abandoned you, he gave you exactly what you needed to not do that. Because you didn't do that. Mm -hmm. I didn't have a better answer. Mm -hmm. I didn't have any other argument to that. Right. And so I said the third step prayer. I said, I'll take that. I'll take that as that there's a God out there. Right. And that maybe he's not out to screw me over. Right. Maybe he's not looking the other way. So that's what I was convinced of. He's looking the other way, or maybe he's using the bathroom, or he walked away from his phone when I needed him, you know. <laughs> walked away from his he phone. just wasn't there when I needed him. Yeah. So that's the first time where I, that, that cornerstone that we talk about. Yeah. Maybe there is a God, it's not me, and he's not out to screw me over. I can accept those three things, and right. I can take this third step prayer. There you go. Let's talk real quickly about... Um, if there's somebody out there listening and uh, you think about your experience, strength, and hope around, I mean, you've talked about a ton of it, but I'm just wondering about what would you like to say to a newcomer who thinks that they can't make it out there and thinks that they are the one who is constitutionally incapable of being honest with themselves? So just share your experience in terms of what you would want them to know if you were sitting down with them face to face. 
Well, I'd say, um, you know, I'd, I'd suggest that they do those, those six things, 90 meetings in 90 days, get down on your knees, pray in the morning, go to a meeting, talk mm-hmm. to another alcoholic, read some sort of a literature. And at the end of the day, if you stay sober, pray again. Um, and part of going to 90 meetings in 90 days is to hear the same message from the same people over and over again. And you were part of that. So I'd see your smiling face in the meeting mm-hmm. and, you know, a lot of meetings are by churches and I thought there was a lot of BS and hypocrisy in churches. But, you know, if you go to 90 meetings in 90 days, if you really dedicate yourself to it, and I had a serious job when I was doing this and I managed to do that. Um, if you do that, uh, eventually for me anyway, I realized there's no way that John could fake it for this long. <laughs> 90, 90 days in a row? Right. No way. Uh, I've been around some good con artists, but if this is fake, he, I'm going to see the crack in your facade sometime in 90 days. I didn't see it. So I started believing in it. Um, and I hear, I've actually had a guy tell me that once he goes, I think I'm just constitutionally incapable of being honest. I think I'm one of those folks, but that's the lie that we tell ourselves as alcoholics that I'm special. I'm different. Um, so, you know, I I think the key to the program is uh, twofold. It's just willingness and honesty. So those are the only two things that you need to work this program. You need to be willing and you need to be rigorously honest in every area of your life. Um, So like a challenge for me, the first time I ever trusted in God was when my sponsor said, you know, hey, why don't you try to go all day today without lying at all (laughs) to anyone about anything? (laughs) Which was just unfathomable. (laughs) All day? (laughs) Uh, But I did. I did, and the world didn't fall apart, and people still liked me, and I yeah. still had a job. So you do that enough days in a row, and you start trusting in God, and maybe the real you is okay. Right. Uh, you don't have to put on this fake persona for people to like you right. uh, or to keep your job. And I would encourage the newcomer to realize, as they listen to my voice and as they hear your voice, that uh, no one is paying myself or John to do this. Mm-hmm. I don't get anything out of this, mm-hmm. uh, but it's literally saved my life mm-hmm. and the vital spiritual experience I've had that has taken away my mental obsession of drinking is so powerful that I'm sitting here when I'd rather be a litany of other places <laughs> telling the whoever's listening that you can have this freedom too. Mm-hmm. And think about the last time someone has tried to sell you this hard on something and not asked for anything, anything. in return right. and not been receiving anything for it. Right. When's the multi-level marketing? Yeah, there is. Yeah, there marketing. is none. <laughs> right? I'm not getting paid. I'm never going to ask you for money if I sponsor you and no one's ever going to give me money. And yet right. I'm sitting here selling you harder than I've ever sold anything in my entire life. Right. There's got to be a reason for that. Right. There's something inside us. Chris, this has been absolutely fantastic. I really... Really appreciate you coming in today. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read a little bit from the uh, big book Alcoholics Anonymous, page 164 here. I'm going to do this, and then you and I, maybe we can say the uh, Lord's Prayer together here to kind of wrap it up. You good with that? Yeah. All right. It says, abandon your, page 164 from the big book. It says, abandon yourself to, to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to Him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the Spirit, in the fellowship of the Spirit, and you will surely meet some of us as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Our Father, 
Lord in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.